From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous shows. On this week's episode, we'll hear from Todd Varwick of Western New York Independent Living. And we need to be able to enhance those choices because if you, can't, if you don't have a place to go, you're going to end up still back in that nursing home system. That system is still there and still presents challenges. Ben Hillegas of the Buffalo Educational Opportunity Center at the University at Buffalo. It's non-traditional, right? That's, that is what the EOC is at its heart. It is educational and vocational programming and training for non-traditional students. As well as Christine Carr Barmacy of Mission Ignite. Not only is there you know, a generation of young people that are growing up that don't have an understanding of software and hardware, but there is the generation that is sort of left behind as technology has gone so fast. First off, our disability desk reporter, Emily Watkins, chatted with Todd Varwick. Todd is the Chief Policy Officer for Western New York Independent Living. Together, they discussed the independent living movement and how the New York State 2023-2024 budget may impact residents with disabilities who rely on essential state services to live in their own homes. What are some of the things that you wish more people would focus on beyond education? What are some of the uh, things that people with disabilities desperately need right now to live in their community? Well, the barriers to community integration really haven't changed all that much over the last 30 years. It's just the dynamic within them that changes, right? So, for example, the number one barrier is housing, right? And there's a lot of factors with regard to housing, right? We in Buffalo have a very old housing stock. So it costs a lot, potentially, to mod a house, an existing house, so that a disabled person can live in it. But building a house new isn't something that a person with a disability can afford. So there's this perception that the housing market and choices are limited, and we need to be able to enhance those choices. Because if you, can't, if you don't have a place to go, you're going to end up still back in that nursing home system. That system is still there and still presents challenges. It's still, you know, $125,000 per person per year on an average in a nursing home in the region, right? When you can live safely and effectively in the community with supports for 35 to 40 grand. So you got to ask yourself, why should we be spending money to keep people in the community versus should we be spending money to keep people in institutions? For 30 years, we've proven that that, that we should be spending money in communities, but COVID did damage to that perception. We, we, we had some people whose service systems broke down living in their homes, ended up in the hospitals and needing to end up to go into rehab. Some of them haven't gotten out yet. So these are the things that we're fighting. It starts with housing. Next goes to transportation, right? We have to be able to move around. Most people with disabilities are not making money where they're going to be able to finance a car and operate it with insurance and do all of that kind of stuff. Like my insurance bill is two grand a year because as a disabled driver, I am automatically in the risk pool. So if I didn't have a job, I wouldn't be able to afford, a, you know, a vehicle for transportation. So it's public transit, right? Before I had a vehicle, it was public transit, right? And public transit doesn't necessarily go everywhere you need to go. So you're selecting your housing based on whether or not public transit or paratransit, which is the ADA add-on for public transit from the 90s, can serve you, right? Yeah. 
after that, it becomes about, do we have the right to get a job? How are the, you know, how do we get a job without losing the benefits that are critical to us? Absolutely. Right. And those are the, the questions that you can come to an independent living center and get somebody to answer for you because there are work incentives. There are things that the government has done. Right. But over the years, you know, we still have to tell people about them. They're still underutilized. The, you know, work incentives have to have value and employers have to be comfortable with taking people with disabilities into the workforce. Right. I'm a big proponent of that. We are a very uh, loyal group of workers. You just got to give us a chance. Absolutely. Answer your question? Yeah. Good. And I mean, it also kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next, which is for a lot of people to live in their community, they also need um, a level of support, either through a direct support professional or a home mm -hmm. care worker. Right. And, you know, I think that a lot of people maybe have an idea of what that looks like, but it's not always accurate. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, what it's like for people with disabilities to have the support of either a DSP or a home care worker. All right. So for purposes of full disclosure, I'm a person who gets home care, right? So what happens is I'm seeing that person once or twice a day, depending upon the day of the week. I'm what they call a 30 hour a week client, right? So Medicaid pays for somebody to come and provide me with 30 hours of assistance. So they could be coming to my door first thing in the morning to help me get dressed, to fall prevention so that I can shower safely and effectively. They could be helping me with environmental issues around my home, things like sweeping and mopping and doing laundry and taking the garbage out. There could be helping me with being able to shop and prepare meals, basic tasks, right? I don't necessarily need help getting in and out of bed, but that's a very common mm -hmm. task for a personal care aide helping somebody actually get from the bed to the chair to start their day, right? Um, that's what a, a personal care worker does. A DSP worker is a person that might be helping a, a person with a developmental disability in addition to the personal care stuff do those things that allow them the ability to interact with their broader community, whether it's travel with them to uh, meet a goal or to help tie them to a therapy or to a work opportunity or to a social opportunity to be with family so that they have the supports they need in order to be able to do that successfully. Yeah, definitely. Like I think of someone I met who had a DSP and they helped them budget and just kind of mm -hmm. get through their week, just things that, you know, are a little bit different when you have a hey, have we Hey, have we put, paid the bills yet? Yeah. Because sometimes you might not necessarily remember. So there might need to be a prompt and reminder about paying the bills. So the next half hour, you know, they're writing checks or putting them in the mail or getting on the internet and making sure that the cable is paid, the phone is paid, the electric's paid, the gas is paid. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, for people with disabilities, having these support workers it allows them to be fully integrated into their community. And can you talk a little bit about what an asset that provides to the community? Well, we just talked about the fact that there's that cost differential. You're staying in the community on that 40 grand versus not being in the community, being in a hospital or nursing home at $125,000. But also look at what, what the other things that happen, right? One, you're, you're employing somebody. You're your own little economic engine. And you're, all of those services that you get in the community are people that are serving you and supporting their families by doing so. But you also get the same benefit that everybody gets in being with the community. You know, the wisdom of your grandparents living at home versus living at the home, right? The ability to be able to be with your friends and relatives and share those key moments that are essential for life having subjective value. Mm -hmm. You really can't quantify that 
but the broader base of the community, there's more people to enjoy our music. There's more people to enjoy our art in Buffalo. There's more people to enjoy our food. Yep. Are you kidding? <laughs> right? And all of that means that everybody's participating more and the community is stronger because we're here. You mentioned that obviously with having these home care workers and these DSPs be assisting people, we're also employing people and that's helping the economy. But I also know that a major issue I've seen as a reporter is that there aren't enough workers to support all of the people who want to live in their community. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit uh, about yes, that issue. Ah, uh, yes. The staffing crisis. No matter what segment of the disability community you're in, you are affected in one way or another by the staffing crisis. And the staffing crisis is about the, the value of work, right? Mm -hmm. Most PCAs, most direct service professionals, they're not making much more than minimum wage. Yeah. You can look at what they might bill Medicaid for a particular service, but the actual provider is only getting the minimum wage portion. The rest of it is overhead costs. The rest of it is administering the costs so that the check gets written and the, QA, the quality improvement, quality assurance stuff gets taken care of, right? And minimum wage is not enough in today's economy necessarily to support your family and to meet the goals that you want. So what we've had, especially since COVID, is an issue where we're losing people, not necessarily to stronger industries. They're not leaving us to become teachers or lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. They're leaving us to work at Target. They're leaving us to work at McDonald's because working at Target and working at McDonald's is paying more money. Yeah. And I know a lot of DSPs and home care professionals love their job. Yes. And they're very passionate about it. I, I'm wondering if you could also go a little bit more into detail about where this funding comes from. I know that West New York Independent Living is a fiscal intermediary, but not a lot of people know what that means. Can you talk a little bit more sure. about? When we talk about consumer-directed personal assistance, right, there's two types of personal assistance. There's what's called the traditional type of personal assistance, which means the doctor determines uh, how much uh, time you need right, through an agency now called the New York Independent Assessor, right? And then what will happen is in traditional care, it'll get sent to a body of agencies that are in your health network. One of them will choose you and they will employ an aid and send the aid to your house, right? Mm -hmm. The downside with that model is one, they may not have somebody right away that can fill that position, either because you're not getting enough hours to fully fund a person or there might be too many hours for one person to be able to do a job. So for a long time, the traditional network has struggled with being able to fill cases. Mm -hmm. The other way of getting it done is what's called consumer-directed personal assistance. This is the stuff you see the ads on TV all the time. Hire your relative to be a caregiver, mm -hmm. right? That's what consumer-directed personal assistance is. You hire the person you want to provide your care. And the agency that you work with all their job is, is to handle all of the paperwork and oversight that comes with hiring that person. We become what's called the employer of record. But it's more than just making sure you write a check, right? Yeah. It's making sure that your aides are meeting the health criteria in order to be a PCA, because there is. You got to take a medical exam and prove that you can perform functions. It's being able to make sure that services are provided consistent with the doctor's plan and that the aides aren't doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. All of that stuff still needs to be handled by somebody. Mm -hmm. So that's what a fiscal intermediary does. Now you asked about funding. 
most community-based care, whether it be PCA funding, consumer-directed funding, nursing funding, even the DSP funding, is Medicaid dollars, Medicaid and Medicare dollars. Now, I'm going to talk about Medicaid dollars because that's what I'm most familiar with. And Medicaid dollars is a split between the state and the federal government. But here in New York, we made it even more complicated because we're one of the states that takes the state portion and takes a chunk of it and sends it directly to the counties to pay. So Medicare, part of the Medicaid costs comes directly out of your county tax bill. Hmm. Now, while that cost is capped by the state government and they handle everything over the cap, and it didn't used to be, right? It's still an argument about why is this on my county tax bill? Mm -hmm. So it all comes from Medicaid. And Medicaid is based on rates. The rates are set based on the total pool of Medicaid money they have available. Mm -hmm. So we talk about why we can't pay them more. That's because Medicaid won't or can't, and sometimes it's a little bit of both, increase the rate to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. So essentially, to break it down, the state puts money towards Medicaid that money comes down the pipeline to you. And so if someone's doing consumer directed through Western York Independent Living, mm -hmm. they're able to work with you to pick their aid and you make sure they get paid and that all the rules are being followed. But if it Correct. goes up to the state level and the state level isn't investing as much as needed, then you're only paying, yeah. you're only able to pay a wage based on what the state is. Yeah, we're only, able to, we're only able to pay a wage based on the rate that the state gives us to pay for that class of service. So. If we're billing $22 an hour, just by way of example, right, mm -hmm. and the aides are currently getting $16.20, that means there's a very small amount for all of the people that are administering that work on our side. Yeah. Okay. And so it causes a lot of trouble when there's little funding and it's not the only service you do. Right. Yeah. Right. And I know that from talking with a lot of my sources, they've expressed to me that the last administration, the last governor, there was just like a decade where they feel like there wasn't a lot, if any, funding put towards home care services. Can you talk a little bit about what, what historically home care has looked like because of the investment in New York? Okay, so it's always been about being able to keep home care efficiently costed. That's the, the, the big word that they use for a really long time. So, so the history of home care starts with the traditional agencies starting to have a hiring problem. And then what we did was we said we were, we were unhappy. People with long-term disabilities were displeased with the traditional system because I didn't get a right to have anything to say about who came to my house. Yeah. It was a customer problem. Uh, first aid agency I ever had when I was in college, um, I had a really dinky amount of hours per week. I had nine hours per week. Wow. So they would send a guy to my house three days a week for three hours at a time. I would have to leave school to go home and meet this guy because I couldn't tell them when to come to my house. Mm. The aid dictated or the aid agency dictated when that aid came to my house, right? And then what would happen is uh, every at the end of every visit, I would sign off on the fact that they were there and I would rate them on a scale of one to five. And when I started rating them good numbers, they'd leave and I'd be replaced with a brand new guy. Because what would happen is they'd, be, they'd use me to train them Mm -hmm. And then they'd go to higher need clients. Yeah. And then they'd send me the next new guy. So I'd have to retrain them all over again. And like college is a point in your life where like so many things are changing so fast. You have all these different but, classes. You're juggling a lot. And I. But imagine training the person on how you like your laundry done and having to train 
five people on that in six months. Yeah, exactly. There's like, you don't have that sense of stability. Right. And you're doing it over and over and over again. So out of similar circumstances like that came this idea called consumer directed personal assistance service. Mm -hmm. We hire our aides, we supervise them, we train them. So it's going to provide greater stability for us in terms of that we control those things that we weren't able to control before. Mm -hmm. So I could pick up my aide and say, hey, look, I'm working late tonight, right? We're still going to do the shift, but the shift's going to start at 5.30 instead of 5 o'clock. Yeah. Right? Now, when they first came up with Consumer Directed, it wasn't meant to be a broad-based second path to aid service for 70,000 people. It was meant to be a boutique program, mm -hmm. a small program, for a certain segment of the disability population that could benefit from having that control. Mm -hmm. The problem is the failure of the traditional system sent a whole bunch of other people into the consumer directed system. And this is where we get into where, where, where we think aid services today, right? Now they talk about explosive growth in costs in aid service, too many people getting aid service, too much money, uh, you know, being spent on a value that we can't measure. Mm. So, in recent years, especially you know with COVID, the state's taken a lot of steps to try to do cost containment. And they did it a whole bunch of ways. They put consumer-directed care, but not traditional care, on something called per member per month. Hmm. So all of our administrative costs, we don't get to bill them by the hour like the other agencies do. Hmm. We get a single amount from the state per month for every consumer on fee-for-service that we serve. But that's not true for the traditional agencies. Mm. Then they turn around and made it, they're making it harder for people with disabilities to apply for aid service, mm -hmm. right? It used to be, if you had a substantial impairment in an instrumental activity of daily living, bathing, showering, walking, talking, right? You could apply for aid service to get help. Mm -hmm. And there, there's multiple levels of aid service. Level one, which is what they call environmental only, capped by the state at eight, at eight hours a week. Now, level one is the aids really don't touch you, right? Mm -hmm. The aids touch things you own, but not necessarily you. Yeah, like make you a meal, do your laundry. Right, make you a meal, do your laundry, uh, vacuum your carpet. Level two service is that service where they're helping you with bathing. They're getting you in and out of the tub, they're getting you in and out of bed, they're helping you get dressed, right? Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're making it harder. Now they're saying you gotta have three failures and in instrumental activities of daily living in order to be eligible for aid service. Two, if you happen to have a cognitive impairment like Alzheimer's, hmm. right? And there are gonna be people, and I worry about senior citizens specifically, there are gonna be people that are gonna be dealt out of aid service or not able to apply for it because they're gonna apply that restriction and somebody who's got a really bad thing with like being able to use the bathroom safely, not being able to get aid service and help with that because it's the only problem they have. Yeah. Right. And then we still have the problem with the billing rates and the rates that they're paying for wages, which are you leading me to talk about fair pay for home care? Is that where this is going? Yes, it is, because I, I know that the budget just passed and it passed very quickly. And there's been a lot of concern from the disability community about what's in it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, where funding currently stands. for. As an aide, I was very uh, sorry, as a person with a disability who has aid service. Right. I was very pleased with what the legislature did last year. I was shocked that after two years of statewide advocacy in a campaign, 
that Fair Pay for Home Care could manage to get a deal where there would be a separate wage for a for AIDS that could deal with the gap between minimum wage and what the average wage is in a community, mm -hmm. right? And they managed to do that in basically two years of statewide campaigning. And I thought that when they did that, it was a two-year thing. So they got $2 in October last year, and they yeah. were slated to get a dollar in October this year. So we're like, okay, look, we'll advocate again when we've done the second year of the deal. What happened in this budget is they changed the deal. So they made a promise to us, and they changed it. And now, I can't say whether it's good or bad yet. At the time we're making this recording, we're, we've just passed the budget. The regs aren't available yet. Mm -hmm. But fair pay for home care is critical because it addresses that gap between aid service and other entry-level employment. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It doesn't matter what kind of aid service you get. It's the thing that kills us because most of the aides that work for us are single moms, new Americans, right? Yeah. These people are just trying to support their families and they love us and they care about us. But within the last year, I lost an aide because in needing to support her family, her kids, she needed to get a job that made more money. Yeah. She applied to be a bus driver, mm. right? Bus drivers in training are clearing 20 bucks an hour right now. Wow. Okay. And, yeah. So it, with a, even with a enhanced rate at 1620, which is what the rate is right now, I can't beat $20 an hour. Yeah. So that's where fair pay for home care is. And when we, uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about the budget more broadly later, but the, but the, the thing with fair pay for home care and the DSP, the people advocating for the work of the DSPs, we talk about how critical that work is, but we got to be able to make sure that the people can stay in the industry without having to worry about whether or not there's enough money, right? Mm -hmm. So that they're so that they're not on Medicaid, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Or their kids aren't on school lunches, which is what the thing has been up to this point in time. Next up on What's Next Producers Picks, back in June, Jay Moran had the chance to speak to Ben Hilligus. Ben was, at the time, the recently appointed Executive Director for the Buffalo Educational Opportunities Center at the University at Buffalo. The EOC is a facility that helps adults with limited educational and financial needs attain the academic and career skills to enter the workforce. Under the leadership of Arthur O. Eve, uh, the EOC system was created. At that time, they were known as urban centers, uh, and there was four urban centers originally. Buffalo was one of them. Um, it was really one of the flagship centers at that time. And over the decades, it evolved into what is now known as the Buffalo Educational Opportunity Center. There are also now four, I'm sorry, excuse me, there are 10 educational opportunity centers throughout the state, uh, and each one of them are affiliated with a local SUNY institution in their community. Uh, in our case, it's UB, and each one of them provide adult education and workforce development programs at no cost to members of the community. Oh, okay. All right. So that, that most certainly breaks it down in that regard. Uh, but you're new to this, so you're learning uh, as we go here. What have you found out in just the, this brief time? 
Yes. Between the interview process and the recruitment process and such, and now the time on the job. Yeah, I've learned quite a bit. Um, so I, I was aware of the BEOC. I've been in uh, human services as a direct service provider and uh, an administrator and leader of organizations for about 15 years in Buffalo. Um, and in that work, primarily working with, with at-risk youth in shelters, detention centers, uh, Buffalo Public Schools, the EOC was kind of always there as a resource that I was aware of. Um, that that became particularly true uh, a few years ago when I was working in Erie County and we were implementing uh, raise the age of uh, legislation, which was when the, the age of criminal responsibility was raised till, to 18 years old. Um, and I was tasked with trying to find resources for that new population that we hadn't worked with previously uh, because, you know, a, a judge can tell a 16-year-old to go to school and require them to do so because it's the law. But a 17 and 18-year-old, they don't have to go to school, right? So what were we going to do for those kids? And I became pretty closely um, affiliated with the EOC through that work because we were going to create a pipeline to get uh, these juvenile justice-involved youth into the EOC to get uh, GED or any other kinds of educational resources. Um, so I had familiarity, um, but really only scratched the surface, right? So I've been at the EOC now. I'm completing my second week. Um I was in Albany for two days, and we had the, the wonderful Juneteenth holiday on Monday. So I've really only been in the office for about seven, seven and a half days. Um, but I, I have an excellent team, um, and they've really the, – the onboarding process has been very well organized and planned. And I've had the opportunity to talk to probably 15, 20 different staff people for anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half and get a lot of perspective from, from staff, people who have been there for a year – Eight years, 15 years, people have been there for, for over three decades. Um, and there's quite a few people who have been at the EOC, you know, f almost since it, since it began, since a uh, completely different era. Um, so I've gotten a lot of information uh, about, you know, where the EOC came from, where we are today, where we hope to go. And I'm, I'm just really excited about the opportunity I have to, to lead such an amazing organization and, you know, the evolution that we're probably going to be looking at and going through in order to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the community both today, but then really, you know, into the future. I do want to jump back just a little bit because you mentioned the raise the age legislation and all of a sudden that need for that 17, 18 year old to find something that obviously is a better alternative than yeah. going to prison for sure. But, you know, what kind of successes did you see in that? Did I mean, I mean, as best you can understand and perhaps maybe how the EOC may have played a role? Sure. Well, I think it's just a good example of the, the, the population that the EOC does and can serve. Um, it's non-traditional, right? That's, that is what the EOC is at its heart. It is educational and vocational programming and training for non-traditional students, students who, for whatever reason, uh, either didn't engage in or weren't successful in traditional, you know, learning academic settings. Um, and that can be kids who youth have been involved in the juvenile justice system. That can be older adults who, you know, maybe had young families and all sorts of other obstacles and barriers that prevented them from uh, being able to access higher education, you know, at a different time in their life. Jay, I mean, from personal experience, um, I didn't graduate with a bachelor's degree from Buff State until I was 32 years old. So I, I can relate to some of the experiences that folks have early in life that limit their ability to be able to, you know, successfully enroll, matriculate, complete higher education. Um, when I was 25, 26 years old, I didn't, I didn't think that that was going to happen for me. I didn't think that was going to be my future. Um, but things happened and opportunities were available to me and I had the support of people and individuals in my life that that allowed me to you know pursue that while working full-time while you know uh, paying my rent and my bills and all of those things um, 
but a lot of members of our community don't have the same level of support, familial. Um, or so you otherwise. see the EOC then as a as a support mechanism, for lack of a better term. One hundred percent. The there's no reason to expect the students who enroll in the EOC to be successful at the EOC uh, or more successful or you know have a different outcome than they had previously if we do not uh, approach it differently, right? And the EOC does, you know, by its nature, have built-in support services. Um, we have c- career placement. We have, um, we have, you know, academic advisement counselors. We have a whole array of support services that are there intended to, you know, getting getting folks to walk through the front door is the first step, obviously. But you know, retention in any institution of, of higher learning, but particularly with the EOC, because of the importance of the opportunity that can be provided. Um, is, is just as important as getting people through the door because if we don't support them, wrap around with services enough to get them to completion, then you know we haven't we haven't completed our mission um, and we haven't given them the truly you know what can be a transformational you know opportunity um, that and I don't want to I don't want to be too grandiose about things but like if but if the, the key, but it is it is this this and other types of educational opportunities in a community, especially this community where we know poverty is a huge issue. I well, mean, and that's, it, that's, it is vital. Yeah, it's that's a what vital I was going to – I mean, yeah. when I, it, it's generational. It can be a generational transformation, right? If we get folks um, who are unemployed, underemployed, um, possibly don't have a GED or, or high school equivalency, who are working, you know, multiple jobs just to, to make ends meet and or, um, you know, experiencing – the, the difficulty of what, what is called the benefits cliff, and I, I, don't, I don't have to get into detail on that, but, you know, there's, you, can, you can work really hard and not have enough money to support your family and not qualify for benefits. And that's, that's, a, that's a very, you know, well-known problem um, in human services and, in, you know, even your county DSS has been working on it. But, you know, it's just, it's just another kind of cyclical challenge that people face, right? And if we can get folks from, you know, either working too hard to support their family and still not making ends meet or risking losing benefits that are vital to in order to, you know, feed their children and support their family and get them to a, a livable wage job um, and also help them matriculate into college and continue their educational journey, um, then that, you know, really can have a transformational impact on that family and a generational impact because now, you know, if that parent has now graduated from college and that child is no longer going to be a first-generation college student. Um, and I, I worked for Say Yes in, in 2000. In 12, I uh, was one of the first group of people that they hired. I was working at East High School, and I watched, you know, young people, uh, college, I'm sorry, excuse me, high school seniors who were matriculating. I was helping them get into college, you know, whether it was ECC, Buff State, Madai, um, helping these young people try to matriculate into college and just, you know, observing the challenge that is college matriculation when you don't have parents who have experienced it um, or have familiarity. These kids are just trying to do it on their own. It's, you know, ju- I think college matriculation is more challenging than college in some aspects because, you know, the registration, the financial aid, Absolutely. all of that. You, I, you know what? You brought back uh, some uh, post-traumatic uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> moments right. there for me just talking about as you, know, you show up for registration the first day and it's yeah. just, it's, it's crazy. So, but really, if we can, if we can help a parent, a single parent or, a, you know, a parent with children um, who hasn't, you know, had the opportunity to, to complete college, get through college, and we really can do that at the OC, then that, that just has such an enormous impact on that, that individual, their family, and then what that child's experience is going to be like going forward also. You spoke somewhat generally about vocational services and other opportunities. But let's get into specific then. What are 
the programs that are available because that may be as much of anything as an incentive Absolutely. for somebody, right? Yep. So they're, the EOCs statewide, um, they all focus on a, a, some core elements, right? And the core elements that all EOCs have is uh, HSC, which is high school equivalency. Um, we have a testing center at the EOC, which is not common. Um, testing center? Uh, yeah, great question. So um, you can't just... Not anyone can offer the GED, right? You have to have a, a specific type of certified center that has proctors and, you know, the right kind of equipment and all of those things. Um, there's not, you know, it's like if you were to be taking a test for a professional license, you would go to some, you know, for-profit company that offers that test. We have the same type of testing center at the EOC. So high school equivalency, um, English as a second language. We have a lot of ESL classes for, you know, the, the immigrant and refugee population in Buffalo. Um, we have academic foundational programs, and those are those are not those are programs um, that cover all different types of academic topics and are not necessarily tied to any outcome, but are helping people with their basic uh, educational background so they then can move on to a, a more technical or advanced type of program or be more prepared for their GED. Uh, and then vocational programs. So at the EOC, the most of our vocational programs currently are in the healthcare field. Um, they are. They most certainly need uh, people in the healthcare right. field, so for sure. This is a term I didn't know, allied health programs, right? Okay. So it was explained to me that instead of just saying like healthcare professional, the, the new term is allied health. And it right. applies to all members of, of healthcare teams, whether it's uh, you know a, a certified nursing assistant or a nurse practitioner or a medical coding person. Like everyone is now referred to as an allied health professional. Okay. So for allied health, we have four programs. We have a, a central sterilization technician program, a dental assistant program, a medical billing and coding specialist, and a registered medical assistant program. Those allied health programs are are probably some of our most popular. They they all have a waiting list, generally speaking. Um, I will be looking to expand those programs. Um, if we're offering one class of 25 people right now, I would like to offer another class of 25 people and, and double that capacity uh, because we do have a waiting list. And if people are interested and they want to get in those seats, I want to get them in their seats as soon as possible. Time is of the essence, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, I mean, folks, time is of the essence. I, yeah. I would say that that's accurate. And then we have, uh, we have a security guard training program. We're going to be offering a class on July 29th because ECMC uh, specifically reached out to us. They have, I think, 26 open security guard positions right now and they're they're having difficulty filling them and there is a certain certification that the uh, folks would need in order to get the job so i think ecmc will probably even be on site and be doing uh, open interviews at the the training session and then we have a google it specialist uh, training program so that is it's a google curriculum and once you're certified you you're qualified for an entry-level it support position um so that, and that you know those jobs are probably typically start around $20 an hour. So it's a pretty good opportunity. Um, we have a customer service program. Hmm. Uh, so that's kind of just basic customer service for retail. I think it would apply to uh, phone service operators as well. And those have been our core programs for some time. All EOCs are different. I've been learning about other programs that other EOCs throughout the state offer. And it's really, it's very flexible, the structure of EOCs. And it allows for EOCs in, in particular localities to really identify what the needs of the community are and then develop programs around those needs uh, to meet those specific needs. So I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunity to develop new programs that are going to meet the needs of Buffalo specifically. Um, you know, and, and one, the advanced manufacturing field, you know, remains a, a hot topic uh, in our community. You know, there's there are. Is that something the EOC offers right now or not? So necessarily? not exactly. No. Um and, you know, for for a decade now, the, the talking points have been- We most certainly have heard about Thousands that. and thousands of jobs that are 
And then available. it might even be holding back the economy here. I think, it, I think it absolutely is. I mean, the, the numbers that were the last time I was, th- this was something that came up in a lot of my youth work because trying to train, you know, young people to be able to take advantage of these jobs that started $35,000 a year, you know, $45,000 a year. There was a big emphasis there. And, and you know, at that time, uh, yeah, I think it was 12, 13,000 jobs that would be opening up in five to 10 years as more and more people retire. Um, so there's a ton of opportunity. It's, it's really important. And that's... Big, big picture, everything the EOC does is, from my perspective, it's about the individuals and their families, but the secondary, you know, economic development aspect for our community that, um, you know, I come from and I care very much about is it's, it's really important. The more people we can get into well-paying jobs, um, you know, the better our, our overall economy. So that, that is particularly true with advanced manufacturing, as you pointed out there, there is the Northland campus, um, that, you know, specifically, works on advanced manufacturing, very, very technical training programs on, you know, those very sophisticated machines. Um, and they do an excellent job. In my experience, there are, there are people who probably could really benefit from that training program, but that don't meet the, the benchmark requirements. Yeah, people don't understand that, that there is definitely just that, that you had, there are certain there, qualifications needed to get to. There's, there's some academic standards that, that folks have to meet in order to be able to, you know, participate in those programs. So what I would hope is that the EOC would be able to fill that gap and provide, provide individuals who are interested in those programs with the, the academic support that they need in order to meet that benchmark and then qualify for those training programs. And if we could, you know, develop that pipeline, then I think, you know, suddenly we would see a lot more of these positions being filled. Um, but that's, you know, that's one element. And we've been talking about uh, just in a short time, there, there was already some discussion about maybe launching a, a barber uh, program at the EOC, which I just think is a great idea. Um, the majority of students who do come to the EOC do happen to be female. I think it's about 65%. Part of that is probably because um, women have, have more typically been attracted to the allied health uh training programs that we have. We have had an emphasis in the past on trying to recruit more males to participate in those programs. Uh, but at the same time, you know, identifying s- jobs and training programs that specifically to appeal to men is, is something that I want to emphasize um, just because we would, you know, we would like men and women to be able to take advantage of the, the programs that we have available. So the barbering program is something we're going to take a really close look at. The, the leadership of the EOC has been working on a CDL training program, um, which really speaks to me because, again, my youth experience and witnessing what's been happening the last several years since COVID with the school bus shortage mm-hmm. and the school bus driver shortage, um, you know, I've been, I've been closely linked with, with after school programs for, you know, many in, in, in a lot of different capacities in, in several roles. And kids have not been able to go to after school programs since 2020. Um, you know, we're, we're several years since they've been back in the classroom and because of the school bus driver shortage, there's still, most kids can't go to after school programs because there's not drivers to right. provide transportation home. If, you know, so this is just a win, 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 right? Like if we can get more people, uh, CDL trained, get them licensed, um, uh, get them behind the wheels of school buses where they're making, I think, you know, 27,000, I'm sorry, $27 an hour right now, plus hiring bonuses and all sorts of other incentives, and then we can relieve some of the stress and pressure that is on families right now because of the, the terrible transportation disruptions. Like that, that, that would mean a lot to me, Jay, personally. Right. Yeah. And for our final highlight, we'll revisit my conversation with Christine Carr Pharmacy, Executive Director of Mission Ignite, a group dedicated to promoting computer literacy and digital access throughout Western New York. Christine is working towards 
providing technology training and easier internet connectivity for all members of the region. I remember my first computer getting it on a, on a, on a Christmas day, a, a Hewlett Packard computer, and, and I went, I was to the moon and beyond, but um, you're working with the, uh, uh, groups of people that don't have that, that luxury just yet. Uh, you're helping make that rea- a reality. So, uh, yes, and uh, how we started, uh, we started as Computers for Children Incorporated back in 1997, and the the scope was, our, our mission was to help um, populate the schools with computers because back in 1997 when the agency was first developing, it was, there were no computers in schools and few in homes, and that really was the impetus behind the mission was how do we get to young people and, and schools and help them. Uh, and then over the years, we, you know, we, we quickly could see that we had a lot of high schoolers that wanted to come in and learn about how do we recondition these computers and, and put them into, into the community. And so that really um, started the, the programming with not only the digital software, but what we did was is bring in corporate computers. We rehab them, You're and refurbishing we refurbishing from from older, right? Not, not no longer in use computers to getting them to at least up to speed of the times. Correct, and that and that's where our corporate partners are, are super important to this formula is that they know when they're, you know, they're they're having a refresh, and so that is a um, you know it's something that we look forward to. And as laptops become more and more available in that space, that helps us fit it to our programs. So it's, uh, you know, as we've, in, in around 2018, we just pre- previous to that, we decided that, you know, Computers for Children was a little myopic and that mm-hmm. folks thought that's all we do is co- computers to children. And we had ebbed into what is now known as STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, because we could see robotics was coming into play, um, some basic coding, uh, simple, simple um, steps that would take young people along the pathways that they can see themselves in the education and then eventually the career paths. And um, and through this process, I mean, it, it's been 27 years of, of discovery because, you know, as the big old CTR monitors yeah. went away and, you know. The, the, com- the computing world has changed drastically. It changes by minutes it now, d- it feels like. It does. And uh, so I'm, I'm appreciative of those people who are, are part of a generation when we didn't text. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I miss those days. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there, there's um, there's a gamut of folks. Mm-hmm. And so as we've have we moved along this um, timeline, you know, they, the, there's a misnomer in, in that, um, you know, our programs um, really do serve young people because we were coming alongside of schools and then we widened our scope with STEM and then eventually we're you know we've we're coming alongside of our nonprofit partners our faith-based agencies and uh, working along with government municipalities and uh, the government um, state to understand what happened during COVID and and that really put a spotlight on our work and uh, mm-hmm. the fact that not only is there you know, a generation of young people that are growing up that don't have an understanding of software and hardware, but there is the generation that is sort of left behind as technology has gone so fast. You, uh, you think about it constantly. I, I, at least I do. When you park somewhere, mm-hmm. you no longer we're now no longer carrying hard cash on our, mm-hmm. in our in our pocketbooks and, and purses. It's now 
it's it's all digital. It's all ATM. Mm-hmm. It's all an app. Mm-hmm. And I I look no further than to my 80 year old parents and how they get around. I, I every once in a while I'll get a phone call and play amateur IT support and and, and help them walk them through some some computer things because it's, it's it's a daunting world. It's daunting for me. And like I said before, I consider myself somewhat technologically savvy. I can only imagine how it is for someone who has never booted up a computer or or, or gone down, uh, open up a taskbar, or right. or then let's not even get into the whole PC Mac uh, right. duality because that's another whole operating systems. I don't even know Linux. We're not even going to go there. <laughs> We're not touching that one. But so you you know you you're spot on when you say that you know there, there's it, it's very um, long suffering when it when you're working with folks that um, are new adopters uh, for every technology piece that's out there. It works a little differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, So finding out what, just giving them um, the essentials, the basics, and then finding out what they want to do with this with their life. And that's the, you know, as as healthcare now is, you know, again, COVID put the spotlight on so many things and the gaps that were out there. Uh, We start, we, we pull back and start focusing on the T and STEM, once again, because that's where our, our expertise came from. Now, for those that are not aware of what STEM is, I mean, it's it's, it's almost everywhere now in, in education, or it's getting there, thankfully. Uh, it's, it's, it's a push towards science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and ingraining those, I guess, four curriculums into... Into, into the, an acronym. Into an acronym. Everything. <laughs> we deal in a lot of acronyms yes. on the show. So STEM, and, and primarily for Mission Ignite, it's the T, the, techno- the technological side of STEM. Right. Um, and, and in 2018, I mentioned that we, ha- that we uh, moved to Mission Ignite as our name, uh, even though we're still Com- Computers for Children Incorporated. Uh, the, the basis for that is that we were doing so many more things. And after COVID, obviously, that was just a couple years after that, we... Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, we, we well, along with partners, distribute computers and, and do training programs. Uh, January through March of 2020, we distributed a couple hundred computers. From January to December, it was upwards of 2,000 computers. And so hmm. in, in, that, in that mix, it really showed how you know, our, our communities are working, our, our, our world. It's not just even our nation, it's our world and, and the gaps of, of folks that were, were left behind. Uh, one of our partners is Sayest Education. Uh, they do an amazing job of helping students uh, with college tuition. And um, during the, uh, the COVID, uh, I had foundations, um, I have mayor, I have uh, say yes, that were saying, you know, college students were returning home and they didn't have a number of things. They didn't have a computer mm-hmm. and they didn't have access to internet. And so we were all scampering to find the solutions. And that's where our team came in and became part of the essentials that during COVID were allowed to come in and work. And, and, I, and, they, and they really took our, took those numbers and of computers that we had in-house and we were we were desperate for computers, uh, and and were able to retrofit to to get them into homes and lives of the students that were returning. Um, but as we have grown through COVID, more and more, um, I would say assumptions that our senior population can oh just your your healthcare you can do right. this. How do you do that? Uh, how do you go to the internet and find? Whatever your life needs are. Mm-hmm. And so through that, we have expanded our program to expand but 
focus. Right. Uh, and so the focus is it, we're, we're, we've labeled it as our Tech 360 program, which provides digital literacy. Uh, it provides an assessment as to where folks are, where they're coming through this program. And then uh, as as part of the, the completion of the program, they have a computer that they can take home. And so we're, we're trying to address uh, all the, the pieces of it. Um, in, including awareness about you know what providers are in their area, how to use the internet. Uh, sometimes uh, there's an assumption that oh there's internet on that computer you're giving, us. and so <laughs> how do I get on the internet? It, Where do I, do I just push, push a button? And, exactly, and exactly. And, and so with phones, it, it's in, you know it's embedded in right. there, so right. you don't feel the the experience pain of paying for that. But in a home setting. There's that choice, right. and so how do you how do you take f- folks from being non-users to understanding the importance of being a user and adopting technology as part of your life? And we've taken that out as a part of our curriculum to say, uh, what is it that this group needs? And uh, Liz Workington, who's our, our um, program director, uh, she's you know she's understanding, and we'll take our curriculum and, and um, turn it to some sensitivities to that population that we're serving. For example, we did a program at First Baptist, um, Shiloh, First Baptist Church, mm-hmm. uh, with with seniors. And we realized uh, that, you know, it was because of the pastor and him saying, oh, we need our congregation to understand technology. And so he was bringing folks in that were more senior, and they went through the this this project. Well, you, 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 you're addressing two glaring needs, I think, in, in society, in our current society, you brought up COVID. We really, truly realize just they're, they're, they're necessary evils, I, I call mm-hmm. them, technology is, mm-hmm. because it's, it, it keeps us always too connected. But mm-hmm. at the same time, during COVID, we had no means of, of physical connectivity. We had no means of, of, of seeing people or, or gathering together. You mentioned uh, parishes. They had to do virtual exactly. Zoom services. And if you don't know how to turn on a computer or get on how how can you how, how can you how there's an isolation there too right uh, disconnectivity right. and uh the way i found out about mission ignite and and the computer for children computer for children's incorporated was that the tech 360 program and and um we i you're partnering with a number of organizations faith-based organizations i wanted to uh Hopefully, they're a group that, that are doing great, great things in, in Western New York. I want to have them on. They were supposed to be here today, but unfortunately, not able to. Uh, Buffalo Dream Center. Right. Uh, Pastor Eric Johns is, is helping you, I guess, connect to some of these these necessary communities that, that need these resources. Yes, and and what and that's just an example of one partnership. Uh, our Tech360 um, also incorporates that we'll come alongside of a – Nonprofit or faith-based agency or um, a um, school that is looking to provide to their constituents the Tech 360 training, but we just before COVID we wrote an AmeriCorps grant that would uh, allow us to have more resources that we could train folks and what digital literacy means and then deploy them. And when I say deploy, it means that they are actually embedded into that community center or that um, after-school program or that faith-based training program. So we're trying to come alongside of people who really reach the the high-need populations. And all age groups. And all age groups. Which is huge because we talked about our seniors, our elderly, the, the youth, but also in between. How about 
those that are new Americans yes. and uh, and those folks that are, you know, the, maybe they haven't been, you know, um, brought along uh, in the school setting to understand software application, but they're they're heading on to college and they just need to understand some of the basics because there's an expectation that or you know. Just getting through to any government agency nowadays, it's it's the phone. The phones are are unfortunately no longer the, the prime way right. to contact. It's, it's all it's all digitally. So when you look at phones versus a computer that's invested in your home, uh, the phones are an amazing source, and, and uh, I look at it that is intake, right? We can find out information uh, or call. But to produce anything that is outgoing, like a mm-hmm. resume or job application mm-hmm. or taking courses online where you need to be responsive through a website, it's so much easier when you can open up your computer and log in and log on. Um, I got I got many jobs nowadays through LinkedIn. Right, and that's that's a huge but, uh, resource. But responding, you know, yep. um, and the the smartphone versus a you someone's know, responding. <laughs> somebody's <laughs> responding. Uh, but there, you know, there's so much that is that relies on how to use something, and and it's we find that it's easier for folks to look at a large screen and you know, access that way, especially as new learners. And the other thing we've experienced is that when we invest a computer in the home is that it's not only for the person who goes through our Tech360 program. Are there young people that are going through their school uh, and at 3 o'clock have homework that's virtual, right? right. So it's, it's virtual desktops now. Uh, and uh, do you have enough computers in your home to satisfy that? We used to be content with just one computer. I mentioned my first right. computer on Christmas Day. It became the family computer. Yes. And I remember the, the minor squabbles that would ensue when my mom wanted to work on WordPerfect. Yeah. I'm really eight, you are da- aging yourself over right here. <laughs> WordPerfect, Windows uh, 95, all the. I remember when you'd get a whole stack of CD-ROMs. Mm-hmm. That's another mm-hmm. thing from the the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and floppy disks, but mm-hmm. you'd have to share one computer. And now it's almost an expectation that everyone, if you don't have a phone, you have a tablet or, or a laptop. Uh, during during the pandemic, we had uh, students learning off of off offline or online rather, and they needed they needed some means to connect. So right, I mean, it, it goes without saying how important how once again necessary evils. <laughs> but yes, yes. Uh, but they but like every piece of technology. Uh, a lot of good comes from from this, and and a lot of necessities are, are addressed when when you have that connectivity. And just to just to kind of, I got some some numbers off. I believe your website: ninety two percent of jobs require computers. I, it's and that grows daily. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, I found that to be yes. <laughs> and so if if you imagine yourself, um, maybe it's a company that is is um, aging out, uh, and you have to find a new industry, right? Mm-hmm. And so where do you? How do you? Go to school. How do you um, re-engineer yourself? Um, and we've we've found that not only is it helpful when we're investing with partners in the community uh, as agencies that can get to folks. We also have within house our uh, we have a warehouse and a tech department that if you're inclined as one of those um, tinkerers, uh, those retired engineers, all those folks that want to do something great, we have an environment that. Uh, speaks to that. So Excellent. we bring in those corporate computers, we tear them apart, we add in more RAM, we'll update them with software, uh, scrub them up, get the you know Department of Defense, um, lang- you know the the language for those those business donors, and get them back out into our programs, which um, it's essentially is our Tech 360 program, which we're running now 
you got yeah. a few tinkerers in this building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saw our, our engineer, Jared Urban, walking around, and that's one of the, Hopefully the biggest he's tinkerers. Nodding. Maybe he's nodding. I think so. <laughs> I, 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 yep, thumbs up. There's Jared. Um, and and I, I've, I'm i on the software side. I, I think I know my way around a computer on software. I'm, I'm a PC guy, just to put it out there. Sorry, you Mac users. But on the hardware side, that's... It's that's another a, industry. It's another world. I'd love to, at some point, build my own computer. That's a big thing now that you're talking about the, 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 the kids. Kids are now they're gravitating to that field a lot right. sooner than, than than I did. And I mean, the, the draw is a lot of times your your esports, your gaming, and right. and whatnot. But um, but I I'm 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 huge on STEM because I feel like it's it's reassessing our needs as a, as a society. Uh, a lot of our jobs are now digitally inclined and um. I, 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 and not so much for the youth, but for the older generation, as these jobs and industries change, it's so imperative that they change along with it. Right. I, I don't want to, it sometimes sounds like, oh, get with the times, old man. No, no. It's, it's, it's more it's about engin- re-engineering yourself to understand the principles and those things that are you, you have access to. So, you know, we're, we're adapting mm-hmm. and uh, there's, there's a fit for everyone. And I, and I know that, you know, when we talk about our hardware department, that's actually a place where folks can learn how to use those basic principles of um, how do I put it together and how, how do then I plug it in and I read the diagnostics and make it work. Those are all things that, you know, if we look at what's coming in the future, the software and the coding, mm-hmm. that's one side of things. But who's going to fix it? Right. Right. And I know that folks like Geek think, Squad only goes up to <laughs> can only work so much. Yeah. And so we essentially have what is considered a geek geek spot. Um, and as we develop our you know, our tech desk and things that will be helpful as we grow and and move on, we're we're looking for those unique individuals and there's a place for them at, at the at our headquarters here in, in Buffalo. We thank you for joining us. This has been What's Next Producers Picks. As a reminder, What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11, and re-airs each weeknight at 9. Each episode is also available wherever you get your podcasts, the Amplify BTPM app, and also on demand at WBFO.org. I'm producer Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening. This is the WBFO History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of September 11th through September 17th. I'm your host, Josh Deckert. On September 11th, 1960, the Buffalo Bills played their first regular season game against the New York Titans. The Titans beat the Bills 27-3. On September 12th, 1939, the cornerstone for Kleinhans Music Hall was laid. The venue is most known for hosting the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. On September 16, 1929, Buffalo City Hall began construction. The building was designed by Chief Architect John Wade. And on September 17, 1894, the first bison arrived at the Buffalo Zoo. The bison exhibit continues to be one of the most popular attractions at the Buffalo Zoo. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. You can learn more at buffalohistory.org. For WBFO, I'm Josh Deckert. Mm-hmm.